Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. So good to have you along today. My name is Brian, and alongside is Jeff. Jeff, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. Yeah, we're going to have a uh, very challenging uh, uh, task ahead of us today, considering the number of things we're going to be talking about. Yeah, yeah, quite quite a bit. In fact, it's exciting, though. I think this is one of the episodes that's always kind of fun to do, where you know we are going to look back to the questions that were submitted within this last year and kind of share with you you know, the most popular questions that have been submitted over this last year. So to kind of give uh, our listeners some context here, Jeff, I guess uh, we've answered over 600 questions this past year in 97 different categories. So it kind of gives uh, everybody an idea of not just the volume of questions, but the wide range of questions that we get. And we're also going to, when it comes to how we're going to tackle this, because like Jeff said, it's a whole lot. But what we wanted to do is really kind of help you understand, once again, the variety of questions that we get. So what we did was we sort of categorized uh, and looked at the questions that were submitted for the five most popular categories. And within each of those five categories, we've selected four questions. Uh, to answer. And these questions either represent the type of questions we get in that category or are unique in some way. So just wanted to kind of give you a variety there. So what you'll notice, though, is as we go through this episode, we're going to, in general, give you shorter answers for some or probably many of the questions, kind of for the sake of time. But what we will also do at the end of each section is we will point you to different areas on our website where you can get additional information. Because for many of these, uh, we have answers, formal answers to these questions on our website or other material that you can study to really do a deeper dive, as we always encourage you to do. So if you're listening and you'd like to pause the podcast at this point, maybe grab a pen and paper or you know, Jeff, in this day and age, uh, with everybody using smartphones, uh, yeah, our listeners may choose just to use the note-taking app, right, and and put down some of these passages. Uh, we have a lot of information to share with you, so I uh, hope you'll take notes and, and hope that it'll also be beneficial to you. So, Jeff, I think you have a few more statistics uh, or uh, info, you, I should say, you can share. Yes, this is not the first time we've done this. We did it uh, last year at the uh, end of 2020. If people would like to go back, that happens to be podcast episode number 49. And at that time, the, the five most popular categories were related to premillennialism, prayer, marriage, faith only, and salvation. Now, what we've seen this year at the end of 2021, uh, a couple uh, categories have come back, uh, but we also got some uh, different categories that sort of bubbled up to the top of the popularity so uh, as we go into the podcast, the, the five that we'll be going over uh, in the following order, salvation, premillennialism, and I guess that's a uh, re revisit that one as well, the Bible, Satan, and the Holy Spirit. So Brian, unless you have anything else, we'll just uh, sort of just open it up. Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. All right. So number one, salvation. So first question. 
Why are people that are considered good by human standards not allowed in heaven? Well, first of all, because people have to be considered good by God's standards, not human standards. And certainly Genesis uh, chapter uh, you know, 2 and 3, you know, with Adam and Eve listening to the devil's lie in the Garden of Eden, you know, from that point forward to today, you know, everyone, everyone has sinned by violating God's will in one way or another that separates us from uh, a holy God. Uh, also, the, a sinner can't save himself, since no amount of you know, good deeds can erase or offset one's sinful acts. And the failure to you know, take care of these things in God's way uh, will result in eternal separation from God. Uh, and several scriptures to include Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Romans 3, 9 and 10, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Uh, in fact, Romans uh, 3, uh, beginning roughly verse 9, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, and especially verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's why people are maybe considered good by human standards, but not by God's standards. Brian? All right. The next question uh, is, can we really have peace in our life if we have to ask God all the time for forgiveness? You know, I like this question because I, I do think all of us could be frustrated if there's a sin we've committed and we commit that same sin again or we have some problem with that type of sin in our life. Yeah, it can get a little frustrating, so appreciate this question. But I think, you know, it's important to realize is that when we sin, of course, we need to repent of that sin. So we need to be aware that it is violating God's law, and it should bother us. In fact, God wants us to be baptized for the forgiveness of the sins we have committed during our life. And we see that, for instance, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, also in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, where it talks about, you know, baptism is to wash away our sins. And so when we are baptized, it brings us into the Lord's church, and it makes us a child of God or a Christian. And we see that uh, also in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Now, after we're baptized, we will all sin. That's just the reality. We'd like to think that, you know, after baptism, we are pure before God and we will never sin again. But the reality is if we live any length of time after that, we're go we are going to commit sin. So God gives us a way to have those sins forgiven as well. So uh, he tells us that we should repent and confess of our sins to him through prayer. And we see that over in 1 John 1, 9, where it says, If we confess our sins, he, speaking of the Lord, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a loving and merciful God who knows our heart. And uh, if we're willing to repent, he's willing to forgive us. And then also in Hebrews chapter 8, and verse 12, and this should also give us peace. We are told, for I will be merciful, speaking of God again, for I will be merciful to, the, to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. So because God forgives us and remembers our sins no more, this should give us peace. And it also should hopefully spark us and motivate us to avoid sin, to make every effort not to sin. So you know, as I, as I mentioned, you know, we're, we need to realize that we will sin from time to time, uh, that it should bother our conscience, but we can have peace again when that godly sorrow leads us to repent. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 
10. Thank you for that, Brian. Yeah, we don't have, I don't think, a question uh, this go around in terms of once saved, always saved. But certainly, you know, this question would address that topic as well of, yes, indeed, we do need to ask God for forgiveness of, you know, sins once we have become a Christian. Uh, speaking about becoming a Christian, next question. What is a born-again Christian? Now, that particular term comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, with Jesus talking to Nicodemus where he says, starting in verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, uh, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, from the get-go, notice that this is a requirement for entering into the kingdom of God, uh, equivalent to becoming saved. So, for starters, uh, there is not a concept in the Bible of saved Christians, some who are not born again and some who are. All, all must be born again to become saved Christians. And also notice in the same context of John chapter 3, there are two elements, spirit and water. And Brian, I hate to say this, but there is lots of confusion and division in the religious world over what each of these means. But simply speaking, it's our understanding this passage is referring to the necessity of being immersed in water uh, for uh, forgiveness of sin because of the teaching of the Holy Spirit. So you got spirit and water. And of course, when we, you know, we, when we think of water, we immediately think of uh, baptism or immersion, starting with the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, first taught by John the Baptist, and later by Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 4, Acts chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, uh, baptism for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38, uh, Acts 22, 16, and certainly it's in the act of baptism that the old man is put off or crucified and the new man is, you know, raised to walk in newness of life. That language comes from Romans chapter 6. And of course, you know, the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this is responsible for, you know, guiding the apostles and the prophets in their original, you know, verbal uh, teaching, but ultimately in writing things down uh, that we have been uh, given and preserved in the New Testament. And, of course, the Spirit's role in basically, you know, teaching us today, you know, through His Word, uh, that we need to be, you know, born again, new life, again, through immersion in baptism. Brian? Yeah, very good. Uh, so the last question we'd like to share in the category of salvation is the question uh, that was submitted. I would like to introduce my four-year-old daughter to Jesus and ask for direction in doing so. She has not yet had an initial baptism, and I would like to complete this. So one thing that's really critical to understand uh, from the scriptures is that children should not be baptized. Uh, because up to a certain age, which, which will vary based on their level of maturity. So in other words, the Bible doesn't give us a specific age, but it's really based on a level of maturity. But in general, children should not be baptized because they are not capable of understanding the truth and therefore are not held accountable to the law of Christ. So in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we are told, and this is the King James rendering, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth the law, 
or also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So for someone to transgress God's law, they must understand that law. And so, you know, if you think about it, children in general do not understand the law enough to know if they are transgressing it or committing sin against God's law. In addition, the Bible teaches us for someone to be saved, the person who would be saved or desires to be saved must be capable of believing that Jesus is the Son of God and confessing and, and be willing to confess that belief before men. Uh, in addition, you know, they, they must be convicted enough of their sin to desire to repent of the sin and to turn from it to God. So once again, children in general do not have the knowledge required to understand these requirements that are outlined in the Bible. So just want to mention that uh, right out of the gate, so to speak, because, you know, he's talking about his four-year-old daughter, which I think we would all agree would not be able to understand these things. So there's others who believe a child should be baptized because they are born in sin. Uh, and this is an area where it's important to realize that children are not born in sin. Uh, and this belief that they are is, is based on the false doctrine of Calvinism and one of the tenets within Calvinism, Calvinism called total inherited depravity. Um, one thing that the Bible makes clear is that God created mankind as a holy being and in the image of the Godhead, which is God the Father, His Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and that mankind on his own rebels and sins against God. So a couple passages to consider. One, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29, it says, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. And Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not because we're born in sin, but because we rebel and we choose to sin on our own. And then the final thought here is that, you know, some also believe that children should be baptized to dedicate them to God. But we do, you know, the scriptures do not teach this concept or this principle uh, nor do we see anywhere in the scriptures where there is authority for baptizing children. So uh, something to, to consider. Jeff, back over to you. Thank you, Brian. So there you go. That's our first category, four questions, four quick answers. Uh, and certainly we would encourage our listeners to go to our website where we've got a lot of additional material, a lot of additional scriptures for you to read and study. Uh, so if you look under the topics menu item, uh, one of the first things you'll see in that list is steps to salvation, uh, which includes categories or, or, or subtopics, if you will, related to man's need for salvation, what God has done through his love and grace uh, via Jesus' atoning death on the cross for our sins, and, at least from our perspective, more importantly, what we must do in humble obedience to take advantage of God's grace. Uh, other Topics under the topics uh, menu item, uh, B for baptism, since that's a, a topic that uh, there's a lot of uh, controversy in the religious world. It's a lot of material there under B for baptism, uh, I for ignorance, O for obedience, uh, and several others that are referenced, again, by the Steps to Salvation uh, entry under our topics menu item. So there you go. One up, four to go. Yeah. So the second most popular category of uh, questions that were submitted is in the area of premillennialism. And as you mentioned, Jeff, this was one that popped up last year. This is one that probably pops up many years, right? And 
So the first question we'll answer is during the millennial kingdom, a thousand years, it says in parentheses, will people physically die, have a death like we do? If they die, where does their spirit go until the new earth is formed for them? So why don't we start out by kind of defining premillennialism? It may not be a term everybody's used to. So this is kind of the doctrine that Jesus is going to return to Jerusalem establish an earthly political kingdom over which he will be king and reign for a thousand years. Now, there's a couple of variations of that, but that's kind of like the most popular false belief. And some base it on a literal interpretation of Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Uh, one thing we'll say about Revelation, and we've covered this in previous podcasts, is that not just Revelation, but Revelation is an example of a book that uses a lot of figurative language and is not meant to be taken literally. It also was written for the Christians in that time for something that would have happened soon. So it's not talking about far out into the future. So anyhow, uh, when we think about the linking, some link this uh, concept that I just mentioned, this definition with the rapture and with the period of tribulation, if you've heard those terms, and there's a variation that believes that Jesus' physical return to earth will occur prior to the millennium. And that's how they pull in that word millennium for some. Uh, there's a really good article on our website entitled The Truth About Premillennialism uh, that will help you to understand the truth on this matter. And at the end of this section, we'll tell you where to find that. So what does the Bible really teach here? Well, one, when Jesus returns, it will be to judge the world. It will not be for him to rule on this earth as a physical king. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Uh, we're also told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, and be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So these are just two of many passages that tell us that when Jesus returns, that's the end. That's when the judgment will occur. In fact, if you read Second Peter chapter 3, you'll see that it says the earth and the heavens and everything will be burned up. So there would be nowhere for Jesus to reign, because that will be the end of this age, if you will, and, and will be followed by the judgment. Thank you, Brian. Next question. What are the last events to show that Jesus is near to come at the second time? Uh, now, I, I might add, we, we got a pretty fair number of questions this year, especially last year, on COVID, the COVID, the vaccine, all those sort of things, you know, the mark of the beast, people getting really excited, concerned, etc. So the answer to the question, what are the last events to show that Jesus is near, to be blunt, there are none. Now, there's a lot of confusion because there are signs that are predicted in Matthew 24. But if you look at the context of that chapter, Jesus is answering two separate questions his disciples had asked him about the destruction of the temple 
which was going to occur roughly 40 years into their future, that did have multiple warning signs. And the second question was his second coming, which has none. Again, if you look at the context and properly distinguish the answers to those, those two separate questions. For instance, Genesis 8.22, there's going to be no change in seasons. According to Matthew 24, verses 34 through 44, it's going to be just like with Noah, just like a thief in the night. We need to be alert, be ready. It's coming, or Jesus is coming, when you do not think he will. Just like a master on a long journey, that's Matthew 24, 45 through 51. Uh, likewise, continuing on to the next chapter of Matthew, Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins, which was unexpected, uh, uh, and likewise gives the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And as we said, Luke chapter 12, 35 through 40, he is coming when you don't expect it, so be ready. Uh, this concept of coming as a thief in the night, that's repeated again. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. As a thief in the night, when people are saying peace and safety, comes sudden destruction. And because of that, we always, always need to be alert, sober, prepared. And again, as a thief in the night, Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 3 through 14, the destruction of the heavens and the earth. And because of that unexpectedness, uh, we are to be holy, spotless, blameless, not let sin go by unrepented, because you never can tell when Jesus is coming back, uh, etc. So uh, that's contrary to what a lot of people are getting really excited about. Oh, the signs of the times, or the end times, or Jesus is almost here because of, and you fill in the blank about, you know, wars, rumors of wars, the COVID pandemic, or whatever. But that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say we should always be prepared because we never can tell when Jesus is coming back. Right? Yeah, good points. Uh, so the next popular question that we see a lot over the years is, why is the name rapture not mentioned in the Bible? Or sometimes people will just ask about the rapture because they've heard about it from movies and those sorts of things. So what's important to realize is that the term rapture is a man-made term, and it's really a notion that's promoted by many false teachers today, uh, as I mentioned in movies and that sort of thing as well. Uh, and it's just not in the Bible. That term rapture is not in the Bible. But the Bible does speak of there being a judgment day when we will all stand before the Lord in judgment. So just one of many passages that talks about this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where we are told, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Uh, we are also taught that God is just and that he will justly reward those who are faithful and justly punish those who are unfaithful. Uh, so if you were to look at Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, you'll notice in verse 5 it talks about the righteousness of God and the righteous judgment of God. And then uh, I won't read verses 6 through 11 completely, but if you read that section, what you'll notice in verse 6 is it says that God will render to each one according to his deeds, 
And verse 7 talks about, you know, eternal life for those that do good. In other words, those who obey his word. Verse 8, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth will suffer indignation and wrath. And then that section in verse 11 finishes up saying, for there is no partiality with God. So one thing that's very comforting is that we have a just God who will ensure that based on how we've lived our life, whether it's following his will as defined in the scriptures or our own will, will ensure that we are fairly judged and either rewarded with eternal life or punished with eternal punishment based on how we've lived our lives. So that's, that's something that's uh, very good to hear from the scriptures. Jeff? Thank you, Brian. And often closely connected with the rapture, again, a term not found in the Bible, is the tribulation. And of course, we've got uh, our uh, fourth question and final question in this category. Are we in tribulation times? Now, when you look at the scriptures, there is not a concept of the tribulation. Uh, it's more of a general term. It's frequently found uh, in the New Testament to describe any kind of affliction, persecution, trouble, distress, some of those accounts, uh, Matthew 13, verse 21, Romans 5, 3, Romans 8, 35, 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, uh, Revelation 1, 9, Revelation 2, 9, etc. Now, certainly there are some great tribulations uh, mentioned throughout the scriptures. Uh, that includes Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. Mark 13, verse 19, and Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and verse 13 and 14. But in each of those contexts, you know, no mention is really made of the duration per se. And in many cases, those refer either to uh, something that happened roughly around 150 BC. Uh, with the uh, events uh, around the uh, temple and the uh, you know perversion of the worship of the temple by you know various Greek rulers, or it's referring to the great tribulation around the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans uh, and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple uh, in 70 A.D. Again, coming back to Matthew chapter uh, 24, verses 16 through 21, where, you know, the days were a lot of, uh, as we said earlier, uh, signs uh, that people could tell what was about to happen, and because of the warnings, they could flee the city and avoid all of the, you know, terrible tribulation and starvation and destruction, etc., that went on with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So for us as Christians, you know, this, this again, is a general concept, this tribulation, uh, and not surprisingly, according to the warnings in the Bible, it is something to be expected for Christians as a periodic thing, ongoing thing. Don't be surprised. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, and 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 12 tell us that you know, we should not be surprised when there are tribulations that it is uh, temporary, uh, according to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 5, verse 10. 
And for those who do endure such tribulations, distress, trouble, persecution, whatever the case may be, that it results in blessings to those who endure. And that's according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. So in some ways, in various ways, we live in you know, troublesome times, but in some ways that's no different than previous uh, eras, you know, from the first century uh, until now, you know, under persecution by the originally by the of the Christians by the Jews, later by the Romans, uh, later all different kinds of other you know persecutions that went on between you know Catholics and Protestants, etc. Right? Yeah. So if you'd like more information on what we just talked about in this section, uh, if you go to our homepage, whether it's on a traditional browser or or on a mobile browser. You'll see that uh, about midway down the page, there's an alphabetical index. Also on your traditional browser, you'll see a topics button. So you can select that as well if you want on a mobile browser. It'll just be a three-line button that you can press and you'll see the topics selection there as well. So when you do that, choose P for premillennialism, where you can find that article that we referenced earlier, the truth about premillennialism, where it goes through a lot of what we just talked about. R for rapture and S for second coming. So encourage you to dive a little deeper into some of these uh, questions that we answered. So our next category uh, of the five uh, is related to the Bible and more particular uh, studying the Bible. So for example, our, our first of four questions in this category, is it necessary for a person to read the entire Bible to be saved and enter heaven? Now, on a relatively simple or base level, the answer is no. Um, and the reason why I would say that is we need to recognize that the Bible really has two major divisions. Uh, the first part, which often is called the Old Testament, you know, Genesis through Malachi. And the second part, which is often called the New Testament, uh, Matthew through Revelation. And if you kind of zero in a little bit more, the Old Testament generally speaking, is associated with what we would call Judaism, uh, the law of Moses, you know, given by God as part of his special covenant with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, Jacob's name later changed to Israel. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. But even within that context of the Old Testament, we see that God, through the prophet Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31, announces there's going to be a new covenant or new covenant or a change in covenant because of the uh, continued unfaithfulness of the Jewish people and of course we see that uh, fulfilled through the coming of John the Baptist and then uh, Jesus as the Christ as the Messiah uh, and the resulting you know gospel message uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 18. So, in contrast to the Old Testament being more associated with Judaism, the New Testament is more associated with Christianity and the law of Christ given by God now to all humanity. Uh, now, you might ask about the relationship between the two. Galatians is a, is a wonderful study in that. Uh, to include chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 7, teaches that the law, in that context, the law of Moses, 
was designed to lead us to Christ. And since that has occurred, we are no longer under the law of Moses, no longer obliged to uh, do those things that were you know, given to the Jews, as you can read about in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy within the Old Testament. And of course, we see that played out in the early church in Acts 15, when there were a lot of people that said, no, you really need to become circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Acts 15 says, not the case. Now, Brian, having said all of that, again, remember the original question is, do we have to read the entire Bible? Uh, while we're not subject to the Old Covenant law, there are lots and lots of lessons that we can learn by reading and studying the Old Testament. Uh, some verses that kind of highlight that and the examples, both positive and negative, that we can benefit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 1. Uh, the entire chapter 11 of Hebrews uh, through chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, and I like especially uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It says, for whatever things were written before, of course, referring to the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So is it necessary to read the entire Bible? No, but there's a lot of good lessons and background and examples that we can certainly learn from by reading the Old Testament along with the New. And the other thing I might add, above and beyond just reading it, we need to pay attention and certainly from a New Testament perspective, actually obey it. Brian? Yeah, I appreciate those points because, yeah, that I mean, that's it, right? We We need to understand what's being taught, what the requirements are for us. And, you know, it is good if you would like to challenge yourself to read the entire Bible just to, to read the entire Bible, right? There's so many different lessons that can be learned. And so we'll let our listeners know, just kind of insert here, that if you go to the study aid section on our website, you'll notice that there is a Bible in a year reading plan section, Jeff, right, that you put together that lets, uh, you know, you can download these uh, PDF files and you can read them that way or, or use it as a resource, I should say that way, or you could print them. And it really literally every day gives you a little piece of scripture to read so that over the course of a year, 365 days or 52 weeks, you can read the entire Bible. So I would challenge everyone to do that. It's just good good to do it. But as you mentioned, Jeff, not required, right? So um, Right. And the other thing, I just a finer point I might put out, we've actually got three different plans out there, depending on which approach you want to take. And honestly, all I can do is take credit for having posted it on the website. Actually, our preacher, Alan Hitchin, uh, came up with uh, the plan. So I want to make sure he gets uh, proper credit for that. Yeah, they're very good. And to your point, three different ones, like the chronological one, you know, if you're interested in reading it from, you know, the, the time that these uh, writings were put in there, or at least chronologically written, uh, and two others. So yeah, take a look at that. think you'll find it to be very beneficial. Okay, the next question we'll answer in this category of Bible study is, is it a sin if we trust our own interpretations of Scripture and not reach out to others for their interpretations? The uh, person who submitted this went on to ask, is this what Proverbs 11 verse 14 is saying? Um, so the short answer is no, as God expects each of us to properly interpret his word based on our own study. Um, and, and I'll say a little bit more about that, but first let's talk about or, or look at what Proverbs chapter 11 verse 14 is saying. It says, where there is no counsel, 
the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So, you know, that statement there by the, the writer of Proverbs is a general principle that certainly would apply to governing a town or a city. So when you think about wise leaders of a city or a town, they will have counselors in their administration who are experts in various fields like law and finance and so forth who provide guidance. So a wise leader will have these types of counselors, will ask for their guidance and make you know informed decisions, if you will. Uh, unwise leaders will not have these types of counselors. So in the absence of those types of leaders, there is often chaos. There's you know, it, it often leads to the demise of the people in the city. And all you have to do is look back in history. And actually, you could look even today. There are countries where there, there is just chaos because of poor leadership. Now, as for our own interpretation of Scripture, it really it has to be based on a close examination of the truth. And ultimately, it's our own responsibility to properly interpret it. Uh, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, this is the King James rendering, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So when it comes to the idea, though, of consulting others, it is still a good idea. In fact, it's fine to consult mature Christians, um, evangelists, scholars, etc., as they can often validate an interpretation we have made. Uh, but we must always compare what they say with God's word. So you can certainly say, hey, you know, I studied this. You Maybe you speak to an evangelist who has years of study and years of understanding of God's word and say, you know, I'm, I'm thinking it's t teaching this. Do you agree? Uh, but once again, make sure whatever answer they give you, uh, it stands up the, the, with the test of God's word. And the final passage here I'll have uh, our listeners think about. Acts chapter 17, verse 11 you know, we are given the example of the Christians in Berea, where it says that they receive the word with all readiness. So those things that were being taught to them by the apostles and the disciples of Christ, they receive that word with all readiness. And then it says they search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So the Bereans didn't simply accept it at face value. They compared it with God's word, and they ensured that it was consistent with what was being taught. Jeff, back to you. Thank you, Brian. Okay. So next up, what are the meanings of expanded and exhaustive when looking for a Bible concordance? Now, for our listeners who may not know what that means, a Bible concordance basically lists uh, biblical words uh, alphabetically and pointers to where you can find uh, passages that contain the word. And of course, because we're talking English words, it's translation specific. Um, some of our eyes may have heard uh, two very popular uh, concordances based on the King James Version. Young's Analytical Concordance, that was published in 1879. Strong's Concordance was published in 1890. So, you know, a list of words and where they're found. Expanded often will refer to having additional study material uh, beyond just the list of words and, and where they're found. And exhaustive... I might mention some concordances are simpler. They just kind of give a sampling of the more important words, whereas an exhaustive concordance will list every major word and everywhere where it's found. Now, before the computer, very valuable study aids. But now that we do have the computers, 
Now, there's a lot of aids that are uh, you can purchase. There are free aids you can use out on the internet. In fact, as Brian mentioned earlier, we've got our study aids page that you can actually go online, go and you know pick your translation, type in a keyword, boom, and find all the passages where it's uh, it occurs, uh, and often with underlying links to the actual Hebrew, or Aramaic, or Greek words, their definitions, links to Bible dictionaries. So we've got it easy uh, these days in terms of. Uh, you know, understanding where a given topic or word uh, is discussed uh, throughout the scriptures. So we're kind of blessed from that perspective, right? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know, uh, it, and it's great that we have these digital resources because, you know, I have one of those exhaustive concordances and that thing weighs a few pounds, you know, it's like, it's a pretty beefy uh, physical book, isn't it? <laughs> yes, is, is indeed. And to think about the meticulousness of a person having to manually read through the bible and log each word and where it is found that's just amazing yeah that that must have taken some time all right so another question that's uh really popular that we get throughout the year is how can i really study the bible or what can i do to learn more about the bible those kinds of questions uh, but for this one question that was asked you know how can i really study the bible there are really some basic principles that we need to employ when studying the bible so, for instance, you need to consider the speaker. You know, who is speaking? Whom is the audience that they are addressing? Why are they speaking to that audience? What's the immediate context? You know, that's so important because sometimes people will pull one passage out of the Bible and literally build an entire doctrine around that, where when you look at the immediate context, the passages before and after, uh, it often really gives you a much better understanding of why that one passage is there and what it was actually saying in the larger context. Also looking at the historical context, what was happening at that time, uh, def word definitions. You know, sometimes you might need to look at the Greek or Hebrew to get a better understanding of what was actually being said, like baptism is one example of, you know, it's not sprinkling and pouring, it's clear that the Greek means immersion. Uh, you, you have to properly harmonize all that the Bible teaches on a subject. So certainly don't want to take that one passage without considering all the other passages that talk about, like baptism, for instance, or faith, for instance. Uh, so you want to harmonize all that the Bible teaches on that subject. It's also important to distinguish between the Old and New Testaments, as Jeff just talked about, right? So there is the Old Covenant and New Covenant, which is the Old Testament and New Testament in our Bibles. It's so important to understand the difference uh, between the two and why there was a change of covenant and why we are not bound to the Old Covenant today. Um, we know that God instructs mankind through general and specific commands, so it's important to understand the difference between the two. Uh, understanding approved examples that we should follow for our worship today, for instance. And then, you know, what we call, you know, logically concluded inferences, or some call it necessary inferences that we can make, conclusions we can draw from what we're studying in the Bible. So these are just a few areas where it's important to, when you're studying, to use these principles. And we have a free study on our website called Principles of Effective Bible Study, which kind of walks through all these key principles that you should follow when you study the Bible. So I encourage you, if you'd like, to take a look at that resource to kind of help you in your studies. Jeff? And to add to that, lots of additional resources at our website under the Topics menu item, uh, Popular, as in like popular questions, B for Bible Study, L for Law of Moses, 
And then under a different menu item uh, called Lessons, uh, as Brian alluded to a few moments ago, there's Bible Basics, there's How to Study, Bible Surveys, and finally under a third menu button, which we've already mentioned, the Study Aids. So lots of material. would definitely encourage our listeners to come to the website to further their Bible knowledge and their Bible study. So there you go, Brian. That's uh, three down and two to go, category-wise. Yeah, uh, and before we dive into the next one, if I recall correctly, Jeff, under that study aid section are links out to some of these study, uh, like concordances and things, right, that uh, some may not necessarily have or purchase or able to purchase on their own. They can go find some of these resources for free, right? Exactly. I mean, online Bibles, online dictionaries, online, uh, well, we mentioned the um, reading plans a few moments ago. Uh, links to, you know, uh, Bible-related encyclopedias, just a lot of good resources. Yeah, and they're all free, right? So that's the good news is that uh, you don't necessarily have to purchase these things. So use those tools because they can certainly help in your study. Okay, so the next major category of questions that were popular in 2021 is Satan or the devil. And uh, so the first question that we'll answer is, is God also the devil? Well, that one, Jeff, I have to admit, kind of threw me for a loop a little bit when I first read it. Exactly. But hey, you know what? That's fine. If, if people have a question, by all means, submit it and let's see what the Bible says. So in this case, uh, the answer is no, of course. God is not also the devil. The Bible makes it clear they are not the same. So just one example that really kind of proves this is over in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Take a look at that. And what you'll see there is there's a conversation that God and Satan or the devil had with each other, which clearly shows that God is not also Satan. He's not speaking to himself. In fact, if you look at the nature of their conversation, the devil is making an accusation really against God, a blasphemous accusation that he has placed a hedge about Job and that Job's only faithful because God has just set this situation up where nothing bad could happen to him. Well, if you read the book of Job, you'll see that God allows Satan to test Job on more than one occasion, and Job did, in fact, prove that he was a faithful man and he did not sin against God. And so when we look at you know the very nature of God, we see that it is love. There is no evil in him. So it would be impossible for him to be the devil because the devil is completely opposite. The devil, as Jesus mentioned in John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus says of of those who rejected his word, you are of the father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Jesus goes on to say, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So this shows us the nature of the devil, which is certainly in contrast to God and his loving nature. And and speaking of that loving nature for God, we see in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So that tells us who God is. Uh, verse 8 says, he, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So that's his very nature. Once again, the devil completely opposite. So they are two distinct uh, beings, if you will. Jeff? Thank you, Brian. Uh, next question. Is the Antichrist and Satan the same? 
And I think this may be somewhat influenced by Hollywood because I think there's a popular concept that says, you know, there is going to be an antichrist in the future. And that's going to be like Satan somehow coming and dwelling inside of a human. Well, the quick answer, whether or not the Antichrist and Satan are the same, the answer is no. Now, I understand many people read the highly symbolic uh, book of Revelation, and they try to link together the beast and the Antichrist, the man of sin, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, a false messiah, a singular, into a single person who is yet to come. But if we want to call Bible things with Bible names... This term Antichrist, strictly speaking, mentioned four times in the Bible. 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, verse 22, 1 John 4, 3, and 2 John 7. Now, if you go into each of those contexts, you will notice that it is not referring to something or someone coming in the far distant future. For instance, 1 John 2, 22 identifies who the Antichrist is. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Uh, he or she present at that time. Even now, many Antichrists have come. 1 John 2, verse 8. So, basically, from a biblical perspective, anyone who opposes Christ is Antichrist. Brian? That is it, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. All right, the next question, is it a sin to watch bad movies that are related to the devil? So, you know, filling our minds with sinful content can certainly lead us to sin. Uh, so whether, you know, we're watching a movie about the devil or we're viewing content that is like sexually explicit or that glorifies murder or, you know, shows a host of other ungodly behaviors, it really should cause us to question our spiritual focus. You know, like, what are we doing, right? Watching these types of movies. And they can certainly lead us to sin. Now, what the Bible teaches us in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, you know, is that our mind should be focusing on things that are pure and holy. So notice here, Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So those are the types of things that we should be focusing on. Uh, we are also told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22 to abstain from every form of evil. And if you were to look up the Greek word translated abstain, it means to hold oneself off, to refrain. So... I think that makes it pretty clear, right? We, we need to stay away from these types of things, movies that would be about the devil and, and those kinds of things. So overall, you know, we should avoid and abstain from consuming sinful content, whether it's in movies or music or books or any other medium, and instead should spend our time focusing on what is pure and lovely and so forth that we see in Philippians chapter 4. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I appreciate how you expanded that question to include all sinful content and, and getting entertainment from watching sin, which Christians shouldn't. All right, the uh, last question in this category is, is kind of a thought provoker and reads like this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And of course, that's a biblical quote. As Satan is enemy of our souls, should we love him? Does God love Satan as much as he loves his other creation? Yeah, these are these are actually fair questions, right, in some respect. Yeah, and it, you know, it gets us to, to kind of think. 
So first of all, we have to understand that biblical love, as expressed in those kinds of contexts, is somewhat more refined, if you will, than our, our modern concept of love, where, you know, I love the smell of coffee in the morning, or I love my country, or I love my dad, or etc. So biblically speaking, you know, love in most contexts uh, is referring to being inclined to do good to someone who does not deserve it. It has nothing to do with liking their behavior, their sinful behavior, or condoning their sinful behavior. So from passages like Proverbs 25, you know, 20, beginning verse 21, Matthew 5, beginning verse 43, Luke 6, beginning verse 27, Romans 12, beginning verse 12, talk about our conduct toward our fellow man, especially enemies, and yes, we are to love in the sense of wanting to do good for them, eventually their ultimate salvation. You know, not liking their behavior, not condoning their behavior. Those contexts are not discussing our relationship with non-humans. You know, the contexts really aren't referring to, you know, loving Satan or loving demons or loving angels, um, but would address our conduct toward especially our enemies, and with people who, in essence, do what Satan would have them to do. But there's nothing in Scripture that says we should love Satan. You know, he is the archenemy of all mankind. Instead, what we are instructed to do, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. James chapter 4, verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, regarding God's attitude towards Satan, I'm not really aware of a passage that would address that, but we do know from the scriptures that God will ultimately hold Satan accountable or his sins, and punish him accordingly in hell. But of course, really the same thing could be said of God holding us accountable for the sins we do and we don't repent of. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Brian? Yeah, I appreciate your thoughts on that. You know, the love, when we talk about, we were just looking at that previous question where it talks about God's nature is love. And certainly, God wants all men to be saved, and you would guess, I think it's logical, right, for us to conclude that God would prefer Satan not be how he is, uh, but the reality right. is he is who he is, so to speak, and as you mentioned, he'll be held accountable just like we are, so appreciate those thoughts. So for more information on this particular section that we just covered, if you go to our topic section, or once again, that alphabetical index, you can uh, choose D for more information about the devil. G for God, L for love, and E for entertainment. And I'll just say in that section, there are some good articles about some of the things that we talked about, right? Like what should a Christian not just be viewing and entertaining themselves with, but the entire mindset of consuming things that are contrary to God's word. So I highly encourage you uh, to take a look at that. Uh, all right, Jeff, I guess on to the next one. So that brings us to the fifth and final category of uh, popular questions this past year. Uh, the Holy Spirit. So the first one is, would the Holy Spirit allow for a true believer in Christ to continuously, unknowingly misinterpret a scripture 
from the Bible. Would the Holy Spirit convict the believer that they are misinterpreting the Bible? Now, certainly we understand the Holy Spirit communicated miraculously to the apostles and the prophets, you know, in the first century while the New Testament was being written. But based on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13, he no longer does that. So, on a very simple level, yes, the Holy Spirit would allow people to misunderstand the Bible. Uh, he does not interfere with our misunderstandings about his inspired word. And, you know, on a very base level, a lot of people, you know, millions, etc., claim to believe in Jesus, but they misinterpret scripture in ways that lead to all kinds of divergent religious views. And that's really the basis for all the denominational divisions we see in the religious world. Catholics, Protestants, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Pentecostals, the Amish and the Mennonites, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is why it is very critical to have a love for truth, a love for objective religious truth in order to be saved per 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. And likewise, like we said in the previous section, why it's absolutely critical to study the scriptures. 1 Timothy 2, verse 15 be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth, depending on your translation. And then, of course, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture given by the inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Will the Holy Spirit allow us to get the wrong conclusion? Yes. That's why it's important for us to study. Now, having said that, it's important to note on a little bit more advanced level, the Holy Spirit can work through various means providentially to influence people to know the truth. For instance, sermons, podcasts like this one, written literature like on our website, uh, encouragement from fellow faithful Christians. So there's a number of different ways, you know, providentially. But don't expect the Holy Spirit to smack you upside the head and say, dummy, you know, that's not what I meant. Brian? <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Appreciate that. Uh, and the next question, please explain how to receive prophecy. So we currently, or we, we do not, I guess I should say, receive prophecy today. In fact, no one has any spiritual gifts today. And that's another area where a lot of these denominations, Jeff, that you mentioned, will, uh, you know, give people the idea that they can, in some miraculous way, do something based on the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know that's not true for several reasons. Number one, you know, the spiritual gifts that we read about in the Bible served a specific purpose for the Lord in the first century, but ceased when the perfectly revealed Word of God was given to mankind. And we see that in passages such as 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 that talks about we've given, been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 talk about all of the things that we get from the Scriptures. You know, we, we have instructions in righteousness it talks about and reproof and correction and so forth. And then Jude 3 also says the faith was once delivered. And so the spiritual gifts that, once again, we read about, they are not needed today because we have the perfectly revealed Word of God. And if you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, it says, Love never fails, 
But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, once again speaking about the fully revealed Word of God, then that which is in part will be done away. So once again, when you look at the purpose of spiritual gifts, it was to confirm God's Word. And for the men, let's say, that were performing miracles, it validated that they were from God. But now that we have His fully revealed Word, there's really no need for spiritual gifts because God has given us all things, once again, 2 Peter 1.3, uh, that pertain to life and godliness. Now, the Scriptures also tell us that today God speaks to us through His Son Jesus and the Holy Spirit, who revealed God's truth to mankind. So two passages that teach us that. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed, heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And then in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He was speaking to his disciples. Verse 13, Jesus says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So, all prophecy has been given, and we now have the fully revealed Word of God in the Bible, and the law of Christ, the New Testament, is the standard that we live by today, and that we will be judged by on the day of judgment. And Jesus says this in John chapter 12 and verse 48. Jeff, back over to you. Thank you. All right, uh, next question. Can a person experience God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time? So, on a simple level, of course, we're referring to three members uh, that are, you know, separate, you know, unified, but still somewhat separate, members of the Godhead of the Trinity. So, a simple answer is yes, they can manifest themselves separately. We can easily see that in Luke chapter 3, verses starting verse 21, it says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and that while he prayed, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Very simple, three separate entities, all manifesting themselves at the same time in different ways. Now, Brian, I really have to wonder, though, uh, what the person asking the question means by experience the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a lot of people today, Pentecostals, Charismatics, etc., that are searching for God outside of the Scriptures via some kind of supernatural experience, like visions or dreams or miracles or even like a tingling or warm feeling in their bodies. But as you, uh, you know, so well pointed out, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, we should not be expecting that today because that which is complete, that which is perfect has come, and, you know, God's revealed word. And so, so we shouldn't expect, you know, the, these miraculous uh, experiences, if you will. Now, having said that, in a limited sense, perhaps, we can experience all three today, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in a couple different ways, all at the same time. For instance, when we look at the beauty of God's creation, that involved all three in the Trinity, 
uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, we see that when we're immersed in water, it's by the authority of all three, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Uh, even through prayer, as an example. You know, when we pray to the Father, we have the Spirit's intercession based on Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And it's by Jesus' name or authority with his role as mediator of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. So can we experience them all at the same time? Yes, because they're separate. No, because miracles not today. But yes, in some limited senses. So it's kind of a complex answer to the question, Brian. Yeah, it certainly is. And some of these can be complex principles, right, to understand. But uh, exactly. I, I thought you did a good job articulating. And certainly the scriptures, this is another reason we want to study, right? So we more fully understand and, and really debunk, if you will, uh, some of these wild theories that are out there about being indwelled and all those sorts of things. Um, okay, so the next question is, how do you avoid being indifferent to the Holy Spirit's voice? So, you know, by understanding uh, the importance of hearing him through God's word, which is how we hear him, uh, and the consequences of failing to do so. So we can avoid being indifferent by understanding the importance of listening, right? And, and the importance, of course, or the consequences of failing to do so. So, you know, the Bible really gives us some sound advice in this area. To first, first and foremost, the Bible teaches us to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? The Bible also teaches us that we should be diligent in our study of God's word and learning what the Holy Spirit is saying. And so, no doubt, we can become indifferent and you might just say lazy or you know, just sort of coasting, if you will, and not really challenging ourselves to study and learn continually. Uh, but Second Peter, or excuse me, Second Timothy, chapter two, verse fifteen, uh, and the King James says, "Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." The other thing that the Bible teaches us to do is to rekindle our zeal. So that's something that we should be doing from time to time really trying to fire ourselves back up, for lack of a better term. So Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I love this section of scripture because it really just summarizes what, what this life's all about, right? It's living for the Lord, denying ourselves ungodliness, living soberly and righteously, right? Being conscious of eternity, being conscious of being, uh, you know, uh, approved of God, if you will, and looking forward to eternity, not for what this life has to offer per se, uh, but, but eternal life, and therefore being zealous to do the good works that God gave us to do. In fact, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, 
uh, beforehand that we should walk in them. So going back to the question, you know, how do we avoid being indifferent? Well, the Holy Spirit's voice has been revealed through the scriptures. That is his voice. The gospel that we live by today is what he has told us. Now we have to make sure that we understand the works God wants us to do, perform those good works, and be zealous and fired up, if you will, to do what God wants us to do. So that pretty much wraps up the fifth and final category for more information related to the Holy Spirit. Again, at our website under the topics menu item, H for Holy Spirit, T for truth, B for Bible study, uh, regarding that last point you were making there, Brian, M for miracles, S for spiritual gifts, W for works, Z for zeal. So Brian, I'll toss it to you to kind of wrap it up. There you go. Five categories, 20 questions. Yeah, we uh, we got through a whole lot there, didn't we? And I hope uh, the listeners have found this to be beneficial. You know, Jeff and I, when we think about, or what we talk about, I should say, often on these podcasts is, you know, take everything that you've heard and compare what we say to God's Word. Ultimately, not only is it your responsibility and our responsibility to study and understand God's Word, but take advantage of all the different resources that help you to have a better understanding of God's word. And if what you've heard today and what you uh, if what you've heard today matches what you see in God's word, then really make sure your focus for this next year and for every year of your life is to do what God would have you to do to be pleasing to him. And really, that's our hope, right, Jeff, with this podcast, is just to help encourage everybody to learn more and to be better servants of God. Exactly. And as always, like we said, you know, go back to the Bible, read it, study it, don't take our word for it, and then have the courage to actually implement it in your life. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.